Welcome to Into the Known, a podcast focused on helping you find the known within you. With you today are your hosts, Cindy and Lisa. And today we have a very special guest, Julia Armet. Julia is the founder of Higher Playbook, a people and culture consultancy who is advancing a more socially conscious workforce. She's inspiring the next generation of leaders to do business differently by placing their impact at the heart of their work. You can find her at higherplaybook.com, on LinkedIn at Julia Armet, or on Instagram at Higher Playbook. Wow, thank you so much for that introduction. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, Julia. Yeah. Uh, I am so excited to have you on the show. You are one of those people that when you showed up for a session, I think it was your first session, and I just had this realization of this is somebody I could sit and chat with for hours. And then I had the honor of meeting you in July, super randomly. And we started talking and uh, you discovered we had a podcast. And I asked if you wanted to be on it and talk about neurodivergence, amongst some other stuff like your own journey. So thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. I felt that connection with you immediately as well. And you were somebody so pivotal in my own personal development. So I want to say thank you for extending the invitation and also just thank you for being a friend, especially over the past few years, um, because it's been a it's been a journey for sure. And I feel like this is what Into the Known is about. I feel like Into the Known is really all about being on those journeys side by side. I agree. And I and I will just say with Lisa at my side, that is what Into the Known is about. And I would love for you to share your story of both higher playbook and then also your personal journey with with how you have come to your neurodivergence and how that is a superpower ultimately when you choose to let it be. Yeah, it's so interesting to tell my story. Every time I tell my story, I enter from a different angle. And I really feel called to talk about education, mostly because higher playbook really is an educational platform and an educational platform specifically for the business world in being able to create space for every unique individual within the context of their workplace. That's really inspired by my own individual journey, being a neurodivergent individual, navigating institutions that were not designed for me. So as a kid growing up in the Massachusetts public school system, incredible education in the sense that the public education system, um, it makes learning very accessible and there are a lot of resources. And as a child, without having the language of twice exceptionality or even understanding asynchronistic development and um, really being somebody who received mixed messages my entire educational journey, it was very important for me to stand in my own truth. And so much of my journey educationally was through self-education. So I graduated high school valedictorian. I went to New York University's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. And that's when I realized that every person is able to create their own map, truly, when it comes to learning, when it comes to development, when it comes to career. I majored in identity and media. So I explored the various representations of people across media channels. And at the time, that's when social media was really gaining traction. And just over the course of my 10 years um, in the professional world of being able to see how these media channels really were huge parts of our abilities as professionals to express ourselves, I really knew then that it was up to me to create a new platform, and that was Hire Playbook. So about four and a half years ago, I launched Hire Playbook, began as a trademark, a trademark recognizing that differentiated approaches and socially conscious impact-driven approaches would be highly valuable perspectives to bring into the professional space. And with my guiding philosophies and even practices that really came through being a neurodivergent individual, navigating spaces that were not always designed for me, I was able to create a platform for professional development. And 
it serves the entire ecosystem in that I partner with both entrepreneurs along with enterprises, institutions, organizations in various capacities, particularly around the social and experiential learning and really being able to create innovative learning and development programs that allow for the full spectrum of professionals to have a place and have a voice in their professional lives. So what does it look like when companies come to you, an entrepreneur comes to you, an enterprise comes to you? What does that I'm I'm sure everything is different. Like when Lisa and I talk about how we work with clients, we're like, well, every client is different. But what's kind of the basis or the framework of what they're seeking from you? Many people partner with me in possibility. So when it comes to a high potential team, a team that is really known for being socially innovative, at this point in our landscape, especially the corporate world, There is this emphasis on how are we going to innovate where we have this digital world, this gig economy, these remote professionals, and yet these bottom lines to drive. And so as somebody who is super creative in the way I harness people potential, I'm brought in to create and implement these programs that allow for human beings to come together connect on a personal level, express their gifts, talents, and then apply those gifts through whether it is a special project, whether it is a workplace experience, like a purpose project, or if it's simply a culture activation designed so that people are able to discover more about themselves. There's so many different applications of social innovation within today's workplace, and I really see myself as a facilitator of that. I also realize that Every single leader who is interested in impacting people and culture can benefit from the differentiated approaches that I can share. So I also partner with workplace facilitators, knowing that today's leaders truly are facilitators. And to build upon that skill, I think is vital, especially for the next generation. I love that. I really, I think it's cool what you do. And I think it's a super unique thing that you have created, one that allows your neurodivergence to kind of come forward. I'm a little curious. I know that you may not call yourself intuitive, though I think I might call you intuitive, how the energy side has really shown up. I know how it showed up in your neurodivergence when I gave you a session, like when we when you had your first session. But I'm just curious in your world where energy or spirituality or whatever you want to call that type of faith kind of comes in and what that looks like. Yeah. Energy definitely has always been a language that came very natural to me. Being able to pick up on nuances and just meaning in different ways than most because I am autistic and being autistic, I have hypersensitivities. Wait, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. When were you diagnosed with autism? I was officially diagnosed last year and I've known for the past three years that I am, but it is just one of those things where my whole life I've known, it's just a matter of having that official validation to be able to say, okay, now I can actually vocalize my inner world in a way that I feel like society can not necessarily grasp, but actually have the language to get curious about. Just to kind of stick on that autism path for a second, just because I'm so fascinated by autism and energy work and neurodivergence. What does autism look like for you? How does that show up? Because I think we're still fighting the stigma that autism is Mm non-communication. It's very, very autistic um, challenges, non-communication, non-awareness, that type of thing. And I know in the last few years, we've seen a lot of women come out with autistic or autism diagnosis or somewhere in the autism constellation along with neurodivergence. And I think putting some language to it would be really supportive as well. It's definitely a hard question because it's my inner world and it's every part of how I see the world and how I experience the world. I feel like when it comes to being able to communicate and really being able to express myself in terms of emotions, in terms of... um, really the complexity of what I understand, it feels like a translation process. 
my whole life, I feel like I was translating every time I opened my mouth to speak. And so I do realize that there are really strong communication differences between me and the majority. And in my evolution from childhood to now, I think I've really mastered communication. I was very much nonverbal and selectively mutant instances as a child. And to over the years realize that my area of mastery is communication, not just from the use of language, but really from the ability to articulate the complexity of my ideas and really the intensity of my inner experience. Um, I think that really is a defining aspect of just my autistic experience. Hypersensitivity, especially to my environment and specifically the people's vibrations is also a very key theme that I realize um, has allowed for me to be successful in a people and culture capacity as far as being a leader. It also has been a challenge in that I pick up on so much. I pick up on so many unspoken aspects of interaction. And so to walk around the world and have a level of perception and depth that might not even be seen by everyone else, a lot of people would say, you're so intuitive. And it's funny because yes, I am intuitive, but I often just think I'm so sensitive and receptive in that I pick up on so much information that it can seem like I know things based on the intuitive faculty, which I also am sure I know, but I do think it's just a part of the brain wiring that is often associated with ASD, where you are able to pick up on levels of information that a more neurotypical brain would not always have access to. So I guess that's the best way of explaining how I experience on a physiological level autism. I think on a social level, that is also very important to bring up. Being an outlier and really being somebody who, whatever system you could put me in, I really would be, whether it was a disruptor, whether it was the top performer, whether it was the um, outcast, there's so many different ways of seeing it. But most importantly, as the leader, and what I found in terms of just my own abilities to serve, I've been able to be a successful leader because of my autism. And I think that placing me as a leader in a position to inspire allowed for me to, I think, impact a lot of lives and disrupt the conceptions of neurodiversity even before I had the language of neurodiversity. I've always had feedback from people that I stand out in their professional experiences as an impactful leader. And I realize that has a lot to do with because my being is different. I am different. My practices are different. My doing is different. So it's interesting because by allowing myself to be different and feeling as though I didn't have to conform to the conventional stereotypes of leadership, I allowed myself to go against the grain. I allowed myself to be a leader who wasn't afraid to stand alone. And so I feel like my success is very much a reflection of my divergence and not a reflection of conformance. I'm like, Lisa, you were nodding so much. I'm going to let like, you yeah, jump in yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to really bring up the experience of speaking to you a couple years ago and I started to talk to you about the feedback that I was receiving. And you were one of the people who really validated me to go seek an official diagnosis for ASD. And that was hugely impactful for me because so much of my energy was really being spent trying to break through the barriers socially that I didn't even realize were attributed to autism, whether it was in the medical system, whether it was in um, the workplace, I think, I think that 
sometimes we don't even recognize these barriers because we're so used to pushing forward against structures or against these walls. And for me, I, I personally felt a lot of the first time we spoke, a lot of defeat at the time and exhaustion. And in many ways you could have called it a shutdown, but it was a matter of really hearing you and say, you're totally neurodivergent. And I just remember you saying that. And I <laughs> I remember saying it. <laughs> and I, I was just so, I think, excited. And that really allowed for me to, instead of feeling this desire to just hide my differences, which I think I was doing for my entire 20s, I was like, huh, this is something to be excited about. And the more that I went about seeking answers, particularly from the medical institution to get an official diagnosis, the more validated I felt in the process. And so if there's anyone listening to this now and you feel whether it's from the way I speak or it's the things that I am saying or just the sense of familiarity that you're getting, I want to just say that answers, especially when it comes to diagnoses, it felt like the validation of a lifetime for me. And we all know what happens when we experience validation. We release, we let go, we sink into ourselves, we integrate. And yeah, I knew that rationally, but to experience it and to even just relay like what happened on a physical level, I literally, my body shook for hours after receiving the diagnosis, not because of fear or anything other than that biological response when you are letting go of trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it's so powerful to receive that validation. And I'm somebody who I'm an open book in terms of talking about that and really being here to, I think through the process of telling my story, give other people an example so that they can see themselves if they've never seen another autistic woman before. Yes. <laughs> I'm soaking it all in. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, Julia, you're just, you're so articulate. And a single sentence has like so many things. I'm like over here, just take, I'm, I give up on taking notes. <laughs> Could, oh, um, just for our listeners, because I'm sure there's a few out there and myself is included. So I do a little research, like the different, like, when we say neurodivergence versus autism, like could just sort of explain the hierarchy there or whatever, not hierarchy, but you know, structure. Neurodivergence is really a word to capture the diversity of perspective of people and particularly um, the neurotypes of people. And there are so many different neurotypes and we were to create a mind map of all the different expressions of neurodiversity, we would see so many different brains. We could see the OCD brain, the ADHD brain, the ADD brain. We could see um, synesthesia. We could see various mental health conditions, whether it's bipolar, borderline, even traumatic injuries and how that impacts our thinking. There's this really intense map. And with ASD particularly, autism in itself is also very complex in that there's different levels. And I am level one. And in the past, you could say level one is Asperger's. These days, though, the language of Asperger's is not used in the DSM, particularly because historically, Asperger was involved with the Nazi regime. So mm -hmm. I educate on that piece because... I think a lot of the time when people learn they are autistic or they meet someone who is autistic and it doesn't necessarily respond to or relate to the, let's say, stereotypes or ideas that people have, it's mostly because I think there's a lot of complexity when it comes to ASD in itself. And mm -hmm. even when you think about ASD and this concept of twice exceptionality, that too brings up. Can you explain what twice exceptionality is? Because I, I think I have a general sense, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say like neurodivergence, there might be a few people listening that don't know what it is. Totally. <laughs> so twice exceptionality is when, literally speaking, on a bell curve, 
you are an outlier in two respects, in giftedness and in challenge. And so these exceptions, you call it twice exceptionality. And in many instances, because you are gifted, that often can disguise the challenges. So as someone who is twice exceptional myself, I often was not easy to identify in terms of my challenges. So it would be confusing for somebody to meet me and I would say something that would not make sense for somebody who has my level of, let's say, intellect, something that could seem so simple yet is a challenge for me. So if I am feeling overwhelmed by the volume of information that somebody is relaying because there's just too much coming in in terms of sensory input, that could be confusing because people see how quick of a synthesizer I am and how I can take a lot of mm -hmm. information that is written and literally synthesize it probably faster than most people. So in that example, if the verbal input because of its vibration is not hitting my eardrum the way that is compatible with my sensory world, it could be a really hard thing to um, reflect the level of synthesis that I think people would naturally see as just my gift. That's just one example. But I feel like it can be very confusing both for people who experience 2E professionals. I say 2E professionals particularly because there's language around 2E students, but there are not many people who discuss 2E professionals. A 2E professional can show up in a professional environment with a very spiky profile in terms of skill sets. And if managers don't even have within their vocabulary twice exceptionality, those professionals might not be able to receive the support, the recognition, the promotion, and all of the important things in someone's career development. So I do believe that just introducing the language of twice exceptionality can be a game changer for many high potential professionals. And it can be a powerful tool really in inviting more people to express their challenges when they too are also highly gifted. So neurodivergence umbrella term. Definitely within the neurodivergence um, conversation for sure. Um, mm -hmm. It's um, in the education space particularly. So there's, there's a lot of synergy between educational concepts and then neurodiversity concepts, particularly because the education institution is such a pivotal influence in our thinking. So yeah. with that knowingness, for neurodiversity to have more visibility both in our education spaces and in our professional spaces, we're allowing for individual growth and development, the ways that we as humans are really here for. We're here in our professional careers to self-actualize our talents, our gifts, our abilities. And so with key vocabulary, that can really be transformational and driving the development of people at scale. Lisa, I think you wanted to say something. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I just was, um, I, this is really great because I, I mean, I've, you know, I've been working for a while and <laughs> I've seen people struggle and not know why mm -hmm. um, and having language or, you know, like I, being a helpful person, I'm like, I want to help, but I don't know what to do. And like, I don't, I don't really know, understand what's going on here, you know? And so it's just having you in, moving the needle here is super, super helpful. And um, I think there's a lot of companies that are just like fit in or forget it, right? Like you got to just fit in or you just, you have to go or we're just gonna, you'll just stay where you are. Um, but I think, you know, looking at the workforce now in order for a company to really succeed and thrive, like you have to embrace this idea. Definitely. Or you're just going to get stuck and you're going to spin the same wheels over and over and over again. Really? Um, and and then in, I, I love what you said about the educational system because I grew up um, in the 70s and, you know, I graduated in 89 from high school. And the, in my entire time there until I hit college, I was like, you are not teaching to me at all. Yeah. At all. <laughs> well, and, and Julia, in our preparation, we, we had like a chat kind of, you know, what we we're going to talk about. And I had made a comment and I stand by this. We talk about neurodivergence like it's the minority. And I don't think I it don't is. think it is I either. Think, 
neurodivergence is Mm -hmm. actually the majority of people, but we don't have enough testing. And like, maybe it's not testing, but a couple things you said, Julia, that I just have curiosity about. But one of the things is a lot of what you're describing are things that I know me and Lisa have experienced ourselves and we attribute it to our intuitive selves. And Mm -hmm. Julia, you and I have talked like, you're like, I know you're neurodivergent. I'm like, I know I am too, but like, I'm not going to go get a diagnosis. And I've known it since I was a kid. Like I knew that I thought differently. And I know some of the things I do, like reading and singing at the same time are, are very, very specific neurodivergent markers. But a lot of it to me is also just there is another skill set, your intuitive skill set. So you were talking about being incredibly sensitive to children or sensitive as a child and selective mutism. And I'm just really curious about the selective mutism. And was it you were just observing the world around you almost like an ethnographer, but did you have that extra filter? And which in reflection, did you have that extra energetic filter of like seeing or knowing or sensing things that weren't being said and weren't in the behaviors that you were seeing. It's so interesting to explain this. And I reflect on this a lot because I have very vivid memory and very vivid recollection of being a child. And I'm speaking on between the ages of like two and four, two to seven. Like I can even like tell you when, where, and all these, not just details, but I can connect to the consciousness and it's a very similar consciousness to where I'm at today. And I remember being a child to being totally, I think outside of my body where I would be in preschool and I would be watching myself and asking myself, am I here? Who am I? Where do I And to me, that's an intuitive child. That that's You just described some of the kids I work with. Like, just you're not in your body and spiritually or energetically you're observing outside the body Mm -hmm. and at the same time what you just described is a very advanced skill set within intuitive training where you are aware you're outside your body but you're also partially in your body and it's a very um dissociative it can be a very dissociative experience or it can be a very empowering experience because you're seeing so much and Mm -hmm. i remember as a kid really having this deep high level awareness of what was going on and also i didn't feel safe outside of my home that basic human need of safety and i didn't understand why did you have it in your home i don't know if i always did i do have a lot of memories of hiding and like literally hiding like i would hide under my bed and it wasn't because of anything specific it was really because i was overwhelmed by the world Mm -hmm. and i was very attached to the standard poodle maddie i also was Mm -hmm. very attached to the piano and i think that object attachment is something that you can see now and know okay that is a asd tendency But I remember playing the piano and expressing myself and feeling like, wow, like this is a language. And I think that was a huge way of processing a lot of my complex emotions. I also remember as a kid, I heard Elvis Presley and I was like really understanding depth. And I remember being Mm -hmm. a child and like hearing Elvis Presley and realizing that, wow, emotions are deep and like just having that knowingness that we all have a soul we all have um i think our own inner world that was that was very clear to me as far as selective mutism i want to say this because i want to normalize this i have moments in adulthood which surprise people where i am so quiet and i don't speak. And sometimes it's because I'm literally having this similar experience of, I don't know if I'm safe here, or I don't know how to convey what I'm experiencing right now. And so that that is something that I think I used to have a lot of shame around because People meet me and they're like, you're one of the 
most fluent communicators ever. And that is true. I can be. I can. But that became your safety. Like that's Mm. how you found security in the world was how to communicate with people and present as quote unquote normal. So when you're talking, what I see a couple things like not in trance, but one your empathic ability as a child was so overwhelming that you had to shut down. There was no choice. Like, and what I think might be kind of cool is that that didn't get turned into you have to fix, heal, and do everyone. Now, I know you probably did, and I know some part of you has a people pleaser, so we all do. But the other thing completely just went out the window. I'll find it in a minute. The picture will come back. Keep going. I just wanted to say, too, uh, the piano. I, I played the piano, too, as a kid. And in the beginning, I didn't like it. But, like, when I found a way to use it as an emotional release, it was it was great. Like, it, I would just pound on those keys when I was mad. And I would play really sad when I was sad, you know. <laughs> so I completely get it. <laughs> I, I think we all find ways of channeling our inner world into the outer world. And I think that's... The thing that fascinates me about human beings, we all have these really rich inner worlds when we give ourselves permission to explore. And I know that because autistic minds have that just proclivity to depth, we can be an incredible asset in, I think, deepening the spaces that we're in. So that could be deepening relationships, that could be deepening um knowledge when it comes to specific subject matters and topics just that ability to hold the space to go deeper i think that so much of the time we can apply depth outwardly and yet when we apply that inwardly and we really do seek out some of the nuances and complexities of who we are what happens outwardly is we're able to rise to just new levels of fulfillment we're able to rise to new levels of success we're ultimately having that inertia of going deeper so that we can rise higher. And I think that sometimes that correlation isn't so obvious and yet it's basic physics. So Mm -hmm. it is, it is really interesting how, especially when it comes to professional spaces, when we allow space for depth, companies can often accelerate, go faster and I think achieve new levels of growth. Yeah, when your foot's on the gas all the time, produce, 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 like you're going to run in a gap. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to touch on what you were talking about being quiet, because um, I find this too, like there's, in our society, there's a, um, a resistance to quietness, Yeah. right? Yes. Like you can't be quiet for more, like I've seen it in crowds, like, uh, you know, like someone wants someone speaking and they pause for just a little too long and the crowd starts getting uncomfortable, you know, like, oh my God. <laughs> but, but I am with you like I think we need to embrace those moments of quietness because that's when you start going inside like when you start but we can't inside. have that Lisa like you know that. like we're not allowed to have that <laughs> right. as somebody that used to be very uncomfortable with quiet like mm. it's the and it wasn't the going in it was the healer part it was mm. oh my gosh people are quiet something must be wrong mm-hmm. it wasn't oh my gosh people are quiet and now i'm uncomfortable going deep within it's oh my gosh it's quiet something is wrong oh no and, i i'm with you completely but yeah. if we got over that then we can get to the <laughs> yeah yeah it's so interesting mm-hmm. i think some of the most meaningful connections that i've ever had it was that ability to not even speak mm-hmm. and just i i together. think just the ability to i think share a very meaningful moment with somebody without words. Yep. I, I I seek that out. I really, I think, have that almost as an aspiration of what I desire in intimate partnerships, just to be able to communicate non-verbally. I think it's just something that mm-hmm. we all can do. And it's not necessarily telepathy, although it can be a tele- telepathic aspect. And I think that that natural ability to just be in silence allows you to tap into more of that telepathy and more of that, whether it's outer knowing or inner knowing, I think that without that space to just be, you can't necessarily hear all the information or I I think you can't always have each sense operating to their fullest capacity. So I do want to make that transition to this idea of sensitivity and I think reframing or reconceptualizing sensitivity for an appreciation for the senses. And you both have very strong senses. And I also have 
very strong senses. So I'd be curious from the both of you, what does sensitivity mean to you? I'm I'm like you. I'm a, it's an overwhelm. It can get to be overwhelm, right? Like so I'm just I feel like a sponge sometimes, you know, like and you're just absorbing, 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 and then you're like, well, that's too much. And then you gotta, I gotta shut down, turn off, disappear for a while, um, go sit under a tree, <laughs> <laughs> go for a walk. Um, but it is there are many times where it's physical. Like I feel like an emotion is physical. Like if someone is incredibly angry, like I feel it in the body um, or incredibly sad. Like I feel it in the body. So, and then sometimes sensitivity is just a knowing like, Oh, I know that. Like I feel it. I know it. Um, so it's a gamut. Like it's really, it, it really all depends on the situation and who I'm with and, you know, do I have history with these people or not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, it's, it's a deep awareness and that awareness can be, empathic and emotional and like knowing the emotions in the room it can be a knowingness like lisa just described and there's very likely an overwhelm because nobody has taught you how to manage it Mm -hmm. so a lot of what you're describing julia gives weight gives anecdotal weight to my theory that neurodivergent but asd people in particular have less filters in the world and receive more input And where you are in the constellation of autism, when you're on the complete other side, the higher the number side, it's really hard to know what's actually in the manifested world and what's not Mm -hmm. versus somebody who's where you are, like a one, where you had to mask most of your life. So you learned very young what is tangible and learned to ignore or not talk about what is intangible. But either way, the... I would be curious for people that are neurodivergent, and this is why I work with kids, especially kids that probably qualify as neurodivergent, but I would just say are incredibly intuitive, incredibly sensitive, empathic, clairvoyant, whatever. What happens when you give them tools earlier in life and how much more successful they can be? So if two, three-year-old you could have learned how to turn down that empathic ability or turn down that telepathic awareness or that knowingness that became the overwhelm that had you seeking security under your bed and then eventually learning how to channel that into something like playing music on the piano, how much more successful you could be or, and maybe it's not measurable success, but how much more validated you would be out in the world and be able to navigate the world and this is just something that we don't talk about in education Mm -hmm. and in psychology i i can talk to people with psychology degrees and everything you're saying julia i could reframe it in energy words in a matter of seconds because my i have the experience on both sides and the educational realm is where this conversation i feel should be occurring but we're so wrapped up in testing and quantifying things and everything that the social aspect of education gets lost really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it's very frustrating. And it's very, I mean, I remember your first reading and I don't remember many people's readings. Like I don't, but I remember yours because I remember looking at your brain and going, your pathways are different. Like mm-hmm. you're trying, I see where you mask or where you have tried to create pathways in your brain that are so overcomplicated to the way that your brain wants to work. And I remember saying like, oh, you're neurodivergent and you being like, whoa, okay. Like, (laughs) and that moment of, and this is before I was on TikTok and really seeing what neurodivergence in a lived experience is. Cause like, I love TikTok and I love social media for the lived experience, like to see people's perspectives. I don't use it like for personal reasons. (laughs) I use it kind of like a qualitative researcher or an ethnographer. And the neurodivergence world, I just see so much overlap with mm-hmm. energy work and spirituality or whatever you want to call all of this personal development work that we do. But I feel like you have found a way to make it work yeah. and make it work and make it successful and mm-hmm. become a spokesperson to it as well. Thank you for just reflecting that. What I want to say, and I also want to just recognize this tool because it really has been a pivotal translation tool. The Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching, which is IPEC, they have a tool called the Energy Leadership Index. And the Energy Leadership Index, it's actually an assessment that you can distribute where leaders are able to answer questions and really measure 
that intangible factor of energy so that we can study some of these energetic patterns, which then impact someone's ability to work, live, all the different things that we are talking about right now, we can make sense of on that energetic level and have it be validated within the traditional spaces of the professional world. So I think that when we can create innovative approaches so that there are ways of basically being able to quantify or even qualify some of these things like sensitivity in the fact of in the process of doing so there's definitely the opening and i feel like that's simply the opening of curiosity for there to be more buy-in institutionally around the divergent ways of working the divergent ways of being and so that whatever is different is not necessarily ostracized. Instead, mm -hmm. we integrate the outlier. In the past, if the outlier had the highest statistical odds of being thrown out of the data set, now the outlier can be celebrated and appreciated and regarded with curiosity with the understanding that something like sensitivity, if in the past we looked at the risk of sensitivity, which is overwhelm, we could actually see the strength of sensitivity, which is perception, which is mm -hmm. information, which is synthesis, which is detail orientation, which is excellence when it comes to creativity. There's so many different things that are byproducts of sensitivity that we can applaud and celebrate, especially within the creative world of music, of media, and in the traditional business world right now, I think there's this deepening in that the creative skill set, the creative skill sets are being seen, recognized and celebrated more because those things are vital in being able to bridge some of these, I think, technological innovations that have in many ways called on our human talents to actually bridge the gaps that technology has been responsible for creating. I, I have to tell you my experience, because I went to school to be an artist, you know, I have a, a BFA, and the skills I learned there, plus being so sensitive, it, are invaluable in what I do at work. And I have run into so many people, and it was a shock to me, that can't think creatively. Like, they just can't. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you, what? What? <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I could see how I could be beneficial here, but that was such a surprise to me. I thought everybody was like, "Oh yeah, you just you know come up with a solution. You have a problem. You think about it. You come up with a solution." <laughs> so yeah, I, I thank you for saying that. I, I appreciate that validation. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a I have a question. I have a curiosity, and Lisa has her question that she likes to ask everyone. Mm -hmm. and, and my curiosity, Julia, is. Well, I have so many curiosities, but I want to I want to keep it succinct. I just this is one of the you're one of those people where like we could sit on Squadcast all day mm -hmm. and like do an entire season just like chatting about neurodivergence and the overlap of psychology, education, energy work, all of that. What would you tell your six year old self, or what do you wish? I guess it's two questions. What would you tell your six year old self, and what do you wish you were taught when you were six years old to have made? education easier for you? I feel like it's not one specific thing, but it's the skill set of validation. And if I knew as a six-year-old how to validate myself and how to basically be there to see myself, recognize myself, and just be there to take care of myself as I, I think, stepped into environments that kind of exacerb exacerbated that sense of, oh, I don't belong, or I am different, or how do I do this? I feel like the celebration of self can only happen if you validate yourself. And I think that part of the reason why in my life it took so long to actually view myself as successful, despite the reality that I was by everybody else's standards, very successful is because I never knew how to validate or celebrate myself. So I know now that my six-year-old self would have benefited by mastering validation and 
I think also the ability to recognize myself. So both, both I think are big. I ask that just because I work with kids so often and my entire approach to working with kids, whether they're, you know, four or five or 19, 21, sorry, if you're under 25, I'm still going to call you a kid. Um, actually, if you're younger than me, I'm probably going to call you a kid. It's just my colloquial term is to offer them what I wasn't offered. And so like I work with a nine year old and I work very diligently in tandem with their parents to offer tools that lead to what you just described, a validation, which I would never have positioned it that way. But as you're sharing, and I'm just reflecting on some of the things we do together, it is teaching them how to validate and be in validation and celebration without guilt, without, I can't be the center of the stage type of situation. And so, yeah, I think I'm going to start asking everyone, what do you wish you would have learned at these very pivotal ages? And six is just one that always pops into my head as an important year for social learning. And then eight is an important year for family and social learning. And then there's all these other ages that are developmentally shown. I'm looking more from like a lived experience, less psychology and less uh, development, like body development. But yeah, I think I'm gonna start asking everyone. So Lisa, because <laughs> we're here and I just asked Julia and I know our star of the day is Julia. But uh, what would you tell, what do you wish your six-year-old self knew? Oh, it's very much the same. But I mean, I wish I would have had tools. Like if I knew how to ground and like clear my space and like, yeah, really. And that understanding, I think that's like who I am separate from the rest but you know what I mean like I was just in the soup of the family yep. dynamic you know where like I was a noodle floating around in there you know going like I need to know the noodle <laughs> yeah um, mine would be separation mm -hmm. or def like like what is mine to hold and what is I, I've said this before on the podcast and I think I've shared it with both of you at different times I was always at the center of drama not because I was causing it but because I was trying to fix heal and do mm -hmm. it and so like Mine would be like, what is mine to carry and yeah. what is not mine? So, yeah. yeah, which would lead to validation. Yeah, yeah, no, that's Julie's really got cool. all the umbrella terms here today. <laughs> but she goes right to the root of it. Like that's the that's root true. of it. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. That's so yeah. funny. But I feel like this question, it kind of was a perfect question to highlight the complex problem that I could have seen versus the opportunity that I stepped into. Which is, mm -hmm, I didn't yeah. answer your question directly because I didn't have the words. So I used my own thinking to offer what I knew my answer was, even though I didn't have the words. So I think mm -hmm. I just want to train you intuitively because I feel for different brains, and my brain <laughs> might not have been able to answer the exact way you were seeking, but I yeah. offered an answer that was equally valuable to the conversation, just as we had this the answer from Lisa that was valuable to the conversation and then your yeah. answer as well i just i'm just so i would be so curious what would happen if you got just a little bit of intuitive training and how <laughs> much your language skills would expand and how much even more nuanced i mean you already speak in nuance so deeply but like how much more it would become cuz Somebody else that is intuitively trained would have answered that response or would have said purple. They would have just given me a color if mm -hmm. they couldn't find the language. Mm -hmm. And I can think of mm -hmm. people yeah. that I trained and trained with that had an ASD um, diagnosis or something of that nature that were comfortable. I can think of two people off the top of my head that are comfortable with me that would have just said blue. Like that would have mm -hmm. been their answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it would be because finding the language is not always possible because our brains have as much as we try to create from nothing and like to believe we are creating and innovating everything, we are so limited by what our brains yeah. know and understand. And I'm actually a little curious with both of you. I've been doing a lot of readings lately about the astral and people's astral experiences, their dream space. And when I look at how they're describing a dream or they're describing the memory of the dream, I am looking at something completely different and it's, really starting to solidify in my head that our brains don't know how to interpret certain information. And so we pick and choose to create a landscape or a person or something that our brains can make sense of, which is why so often dreams don't, I think, make sense. So that's just like my little current pet theory I'm playing with is like how our brains do require an, an amount of schema or uh schemes that's not the right word templates to like kind of work from and i'm just yeah 
I don't think there was a question in there. I have, a, I have an insight and it's a perception. It's a perspective. I actually believe that many people who identify with ASD would agree that not coming in with a preconceived idea or a stereotype or let's say a schema is like something that's more, I think, natural than the average brain. And the feedback of, oh, you're so non-judgmental, that is something that when you take an assessment for ASD, the question of non-judgment comes up. And when you take 360s as a professional and you are told, wow, you have a high level of non-judgment, that often has to do with not having that attachment to an existing schema or interpretation, assumption, however you want to look at it. Which would explain past historical ways in which we have treated people that are neurodivergent and not elevated them and instead put them in these spaces of no con like not believing they have the ability to do something yeah and competence is not assumed and i think we have entered a world where competence is being assumed and we're working with the fact that your non-judgment comes from not having a template to start with yeah i think that's one of the limits that you put on your brain are those templates like your brain can't think past these templates if you yeah. like if you're if they're carved in there, you know if you're taught a way of looking at the world and you judge this this way and that way and you keep that, then your brain has capacity is narrowed, right? So if you yeah. come in with it and you have non judgment, there's no judgment, you have no no bumpers. <laughs> <laughs> I think your brain can process a little differently. So totally. I think that's part of the problem. And I think. It's all, I mean, I think what we're talking about is a result of evolution and we have mm -hmm. shifted into the next evolution of the human mind I and one so. that accepts it as opposed to one that's based on survival mm -hmm. and need. Lisa, you have your favorite question. Yes, that's my, my favorite question. Um, are you seeing any common themes with your clients that you're working with? Yeah. In workplace environments, very service-oriented groups, when they experience internal tension, I often look around the room and I ask, where's the neurodiversity? And I believe in the law of attraction. So what I know is the relational tensions and the core cause of those relational tensions, the more that we can unmask in those spaces, the faster transformation happens. So I mm -hmm. would say that in the liberation of our neurodiversity within our professional spaces, we can drive innovation and really transform our industries. And that would be the theme that excites me on a macro level. And it excites me within every workplace that I have the opportunity to serve. Yeah, I love that. All right, ladies, anyone have any burning thoughts, insights, questions left? Yeah, I'd love to hear from you both. What personal insight about yourself were you able to receive through this shared space today? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you don't you don't play lightly. You you play hardball like out the gates. I know. I love it. <laughs> Um, I just, I loved the depth that we went, you know, you don't get much chance to do that very, you know, in my day to day working world and life, you know, you sort of stay on the surface. So I really, I really enjoyed that. And I, I love going deep. So when I can, we can. Um, and I loved, um, the ability to work with someone who is neurally divergent from myself, right. And then, but be able to have space together. You know, whether the conversation was easy or fluent or not or whatever, it didn't matter, right? Like we were just here and we had space and we're sharing space and we're celebrating our differences and we're sharing perspective. And I feel like my capacity to like, you know, hold that and make it bigger is has grown from this conversation. So love thank it. you. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Mine would be a lot of validation around the neurodivergence conversation and what you're sharing and how much it is the other side of the coin of what I work with, with kids all the time and some adults, mostly kids. And just the validation that my approaches are actually 
they I know I know that they're impactful. I see these kids all the time. I work with their parents, but to know that that impact is going to be a lasting impact into their adulthood just mm-hmm. by virtue of what you have shared, as well as just getting some of that depth, like Lisa said, and really understanding what's going on in corporate America. I'm not a part of corporate America. I have no idea, aside from energetically what I see, and man, some of what I see energetically is not super fun. Mm-hmm. So it's cool to have access to stories around people that are seeing those challenges that I see energetically and finding ways to create the change in a a stream that is going to be well picked up. A lot of what I do, like I have to really change language to get people Mm -hmm. to understand some of the value, whereas you have the language and you have that. And so those would be my insights about myself. What are your, what is your insight about yourself, Julia? What, what did you learn today in the last hour? Well, first, I just want to say I love both of your answers. I, I felt like totally that depth that we all had and that I think trust and transparency was just so easy and natural. I love the intentional exploration of childhood. And I feel like mm. when you made that, comment earlier about these children who experience out-of-body moments, I just found that extremely validating. And I also feel like the understanding of that tendency from a space of just natural abilities to kind of transcend our bodies doesn't necessarily have to be a disassociation, but really it's just a natural part of the way that certain human beings experience the world. So mm-hmm. I I felt very, I think, validated by just your natural inclusive lens. So I think what I see high level when we have conversations such as these is it becomes so much more natural to talk about potentially things that yes. we didn't even realize we had permission to talk about. So that unmasking, I felt just naturally occurred through our, our talk today. Yeah, I love if that. you want to come back and, and talk about childhood more and yeah. share more stories, we'll do it again. Like have, have the psychology, so, socio cultural aspect with the energy. I'm here yeah. for it. Mm-hmm. I'm so here for it. And not in an inner child way. I just want to be really clear this isn't trying to do inner child work. This is, well, I mean, to some degree, yes, it is, but. I'm just fascinated by people's experiences because then they validate my own. Like, Julia, I know we're within three years of each other in terms of age. We grew up on the opposite coast. And yet some of what you talked about, either I experienced or people around me experienced. And I Mm -hmm. remember watching friends just shut down. I mean, I went on a trip recently and watched a friend shut down because of what I would say is her neurodivergence and her sensitivity. And I don't know that she would agree with that, but that's what I would think it is. So yeah, if you ever want to come back and you mm-hmm. want to talk more about childhood or not even just yours, but like children in general, I'm yeah. here for it. Sounds yeah. like Lisa's Oh, totally. It. Absolutely. And the layer of the conversation that we didn't discuss is the generational influence and this, yes. this movement of neurodiversity from the 90s onward. Yeah. It makes perfect sense that here we are, 2022, with those... 90s students now as these workplace leaders, culture leaders, Mm -hmm. and here we are introducing these concepts that we, let's say, were the first generation to even have at our fingertips. So it's quite quite cool to be able to realize that our generations are having these shifts. And so this upcoming generation will be, I think, extremely empowered given the direction that we're headed in. Yeah. Well, and, oh, and the Gen Z crowd yeah. is mm-hmm. being parented by the Gen Xers, which yeah. is what Lisa is, <laughs> yeah. and the elder millennials and millennials, yeah. which is what we are. And I just want to tack on, and maybe this is not a value, but it popped into my head. I had two separate conversations this week with boomer men. And with one of them, he was genuinely surprised that I went to therapy. And he's like, I don't understand why you go to therapy. You're one of the most put together people I've ever met. And I'm just like, that's because I go to therapy. And also like, (laughs) you think that I'm put together because you see one lens Mm -hmm. of my life and I have no interest in sharing what's behind that. But also you clearly don't listen to the podcast with consistency because I talk about therapy all the time. And then And I was not expecting that from that particular person. And the next day, I had a conversation with the archaeologist that I work with, who's old school archaeologist. I've talked about him on here before. I had it was like a coming out before I started my business. He was somebody I had to quote unquote come out to. 
And we started talking about it and the amount of support of th- about therapy and the conversation we were able to have, it was like night and day. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, y'all are both boomers, very different backgrounds, very different things and very different approaches, but also very different lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And the neurodivergence, I think, is a concept a lot of boomers, there's not a boomer on the show right now, so I can say this, may not fully understand. Yeah. And they may not understand it because they didn't have permission right. to have it. Just like the silent generation didn't have permission for their sexuality. Right. I feel like boomers didn't have permission for their emotional health. Oh, yeah. No way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100%. I can tell you that. Why-, <laughs> Why do I feel like we already have another episode or two here? One about generations, one about children. And then the intersectionality oh and the interdisciplinary yeah. approaches. There's lots of different yeah. layers here. So season four might be going a little bit more into how science and energy yeah, are all coming together. I love it. I'm here for that. I'm here for that. I love it. Well, thank you, Julia, for yes. joining us today. We are so grateful and mm-hmm. lucky to have you on. Yes, and yes. seriously, you are welcome back when you want to when you want to mm-hmm. come back and chat more. You let us know because yeah. we are here for oh, it. Oh, we'll bug you. Lisa's so good at the, the admin side of like ensuring people get on. And I'm just like, I will just ask people. And then she does all of the like poking and prodding, which I'm grateful for. All right, Wanderers, thank you so much for joining us today and listening as Julia from Higher Playbook joined us. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and hit follow on whatever platform you listen to us on. And if this episode is going to resonate with one of your neurodivergent friends, please feel free to forward it to them. You can find Julia at www.higherplaybook.com. Not sure why I had to put the www there, but here we are. She's also on LinkedIn, Julia Armet, A-R-M-E-T, and on Instagram at Higher Playbook. You can find Lisa and myself on Instagram. Lisa is at Insight and Harmony, and Into the Known is at Into underscore the underscore known. And if you have any ideas, anything you want to hear on the podcast, or if you want to share your own story of neurodivergence, please feel free to email us, cindy, C-Y-N-D-I, at intothenown.com, or if it's easier, hello at intothenown.com. Until next time, enjoy the wonder.